Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Franklin, for this introduction. I also wish to thank the Royal Bank of Canada and the Bolian Library for granting me this wonderful opportunity uh, to come here and research the rare collections. I'm also grateful for the support of the Banting Fellowship of Canada, which allows me to pursue this research. Uh, and last but not least, I want to thank the community here at the University of Oxford for their warm, warm welcome. Um, so with the growing online uh, book market, especially with the advent of digital publishing and the popular e-readers, one of the more dramatic changes to impact publishing today has been the ability of a growing number of authors to bypass traditional publishers uh, to, to produce and sell their own books. In fact, for a few years now, self-publishing has been producing more books each year than traditional publishing. This phenomenon naturally raises a number of uh, questions uh, pertaining to, uh, among other things, the place and role of authors and the relevance of the booksellers and publishers as uh, cultural mediators and promoters of literature. These questions are certainly not new, and in fact, the practice that we call self-publishing has a long past. Today, instead of concentrating on the singular aspect of self-publishing in the 18th century, I wish to give you a very broad and general overview of the research I did for France, and also provide a glimpse of what I managed to find for London in my research here at the Bodleian. Okay, so first of all, how do I define self-publishing? For methodological reasons and the possibility to search sources uh, in my study of France, I define self-publishing as the case when an author owned all the, and kept all the rights to his work, paid for all publishing costs, and sold the books by himself, or chez l'auteur. I say for methodological reasons because this mention of chez l'auteur on the title page, as in this case here, for those who can see here, um, is, uh, provides the most efficient way to find those books with the available sources. On French uh, title pages, the address usually only tells us who sold the book, but not necessarily for whom or by whom it was printed. We don't have this limitation in the case of London, where we find both the inscriptions printed for the author and sold by the author. Um, so it is possible to make this important distinction. For example, here you have printed for and sold by the author. In the 18th century, uh, London and Paris offered uh, both similar and different contexts uh, for self-publishing. The first tangible contrast had to do with the laws that governed the book trade in one nation and the other. In England, starting with the 1695 Licensing Act, there was no more restriction on printing in either London or the provinces. In France, several bookselling codes issued in the 17th and 18th centuries stipulated that only members <coughs> of the guild could own and use printing presses. The French Code of 1723 clearly, uh, also clearly stated that it was um, uh, prohibited to every person, whatever their station, other than the booksellers and printers, to engage in book commerce, to sell or advertise books, whether they declare the themselves the author or not. In this context, in, this context uh, in France, for most of the 18th century, it is basically impossible to self-publish successfully. Um, an author had the right to acquire the rights, um, uh, you know, a printing privilege in his name and pay for the printing costs. 
No bookseller would, of course, object to that. But if he wanted the book to actually be sold to readers, and he probably would, um, he had to ask booksellers to do it for him. And since it was certainly less profitable for booksellers, who were also then the publishers, to sell books uh, whose rights were not their own, they didn't do much to sell those uh, self-published books. And authors were eventually, out of desperation, forced to sell the copies and the rights to these booksellers. Because of this situation, it is not surprising that writers could not gain much by self-publishing up to that point. Um, to that effect, Denis Diderot wrote in 1763, I have written and I have on several occasions printed works on my own account. Out of 100 authors who will wish to sell their books themselves, 99 will fail and be disgusted by it. The Parisian Guild thus enjoyed many privileges, especially in comparison with the neighboring nations. In London, the Stationers' Company lost its monopoly with the License and Act of 1695, and with the Statute of Anne of 1710, authors could now also acquire the rights to their works. And even though uh, London booksellers did try to get the sole right to sell books, as in France in 1735, uh, the second point of their proposed bill did ask that authors be compelled to sell their books to members of the trade in order to have them published. This bill <coughs> did not pass and authors would always keep the right uh, to publish and sell their own books. But in France, booksellers did have the sole prerogative to sell books. And they did, so, and they did go after several authors who tried anyway in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, this was famously the case of uh, Luneau de Bois-Germain, who uh, in 1768, the representative of the guild broke down his door, smashed all the boxes lying around in his apartment, and seized all the papers and books they could find. Of course, the author gives a very detailed account of this. Um, this case is especially interesting as it mobilized many people from the literary community who expressed their views about the role of booksellers, the place of authors, and the nature of literary property, including Voltaire, who supported Luneau. For authors like Luneau de Bois-Germain, who in a way launched a crusade for self-publishing in the 1770s, a writer's right to really own his work and make profit from it was a matter of principle. To that effect, he wrote, uh, as soon as I have obtained the privilege of a work as its author or editor, I become in every way its master and physical proprietor. When I have paid all printing costs, my ownership has received a new degree of certainty. Furthermore, my thoughts, the manuscripts that contain them, are even more my own than my house or my land. So in this logic, a book is not just like any other property. The comparative study of uh, the legislative context and debates will certainly be an important part of my project. What is particularly interesting in the case of self-publishing is that authors who exploited the literary rights themselves could speak from both sides in a way because they were as concerned with the intellectual protection as with the commercial protection of their work. In any case, uh, the French government established a new book-selling code in August of 1777 that clearly put the status of authors uh, above that of the booksellers, and it also stipulated that every author who obtains uh, a privilege in his name for his book will have the right to sell it at his home 
and will enjoy his privilege for himself and his heirs forever. What I have shown in my previous uh, research is that uh, is the real impact of this new uh, legislation that was for a long time underestimated by historians, which in fact encouraged many authors to self-publish. As we can see from uh, this chart, the number of books uh, sold by the author does indeed rise considerably from 1878 onwards here. In the 1780s alone, I found close to 450 authors who self-published in Paris. That is, authors who not only paid to have their books printed, but also who sold them themselves. So what about London now? Uh, for the sake of better comparison, just for now, I have limited my set of preliminary data for London to books that were not only printed for the author, but also sold by them. Um, as indicated in the ESTC or English Short Title Catalog and also in the Bodleian Solo Catalog which actually is, is more helpful on several accounts uh, than the ESTC for my research purposes. As we can see from um, uh, here, for this period in any case, the number of books sold by their authors follows a somewhat similar pattern in both uh, Paris and London. It's true that the motives behind such an, a considerable endeavor were most probably similar in both capitals. Trapped in a system where most booksellers publishers owned all the rights and made all the profit from books, authors, who generally except in rare cases, made very little money by selling their manuscript, could take matters into their own hands and try to make it on their own. But how did one concretely publish a book by himself or herself in the 18th century. Who were these authors' publishers? What did they publish? What did it mean for them to sell their books on their own? For the remainder of the lecture, I will address the simple and yet challenging questions of uh, who, what, and how. All right, so um, first, uh, what type of books were self-published at the end of the old regime in Paris? In order to have a better idea, I divide the 800 titles I worked on into the five major categories then used. And uh, as you can see from this graph, the arts and sciences, the last column here, uh, is the most prominent category. When we compare this um, uh, classification with what was published at the time for the years 84 to 88 here, um, for which we have a detailed study by François Furet, we still see a predominance of the science and arts, um, but the difference is not that substantial. Uh, you know, the difference is not uh, so great compared to what was produced at the time. We also notice a smaller number of books on law or religion. This is something um, I anticipate to be rather different for the English study, as I do find several works of a religious nature, such as sermons, um, that were self-published. When we look more closely at the subcategories, because of course science and arts is, is very broad, um, uh, we easily find the importance of works regarding politics or society, um, economy and administration and the specialized arts. We also see how the sciences are well represented, especially when it comes to books about natural history and medicine. In the end, we do basically find all kinds of books that were printed for and sold by the author. Um, 
but if we do find um, prints that were probably specific to self-publishing, they can be found, I think, in the few extreme cases. That is, either books that are so poorly made um, that no respected bookseller would ever sell them, such as this one here, for which the author might not have afforded an amended copy uh, reprint and simply made the corrections directly on the copy. Uh, maybe it's not clear from where you stand, but these are glued pieces of paper onto the pages and just handwritten corrections. Uh, but you know this is uh, not usual of the, the you know the, the uh, most of the books that I looked at. Um, or at the other end of the spectrum, we also find books that demanded such an investment that booksellers will not be ready to risk their money to publish them. For example, this um, oops, sorry, wrong computer. This uh, history of uh, the Condé family, uh, published by the Chevalier de Beaurin, who. Uh, contained 45 maps, uh, lavish illustrations. Um, here, we'll just find my way on the other computer. Um, and uh, so it was a grand folio, and the author boasted in his preface that he doubled his efforts with pleasure and zeal to publish a book more worthy of the public's approbation also saying that he neglected and spared nothing for the accuracy, beauty, precision, and perfection of the illustrations here. Other than these few extreme cases, we find just any kind of book, from the cheap to produce play, all the way to the beautiful and illustrated volumes. From what I have seen uh, so far uh, at the Bodleian, it seems that the same kind of books were self-published in London. Uh, here are a few uh, examples of, uh, of the books that I was able to take a look at from the simple play, such as this one here, uh, On the Conquest of Canada, uh, which you can see uh, on display at the Bolian um, just outside here today, and also uh, other rather cheap prints, such as this description of Ireland, um, uh, dissertation on venereal diseases, uh, a topic also very popular in Paris at the same time, and also this guide to become uh, rich and respectable, you know, in case uh, it might be of interest. As expected, I also do find several religious works, such as uh, this one uh, here, but also practical and technical books. Um, this one is dating from an earlier period, um, but I still wanted to show it to you because I thought it was of uh, special interest for its many notes and uh, marginalia. It's always um, fun to, to find books with uh, drawings and markings. Uh, you know, this is one of the page. You can see drawings of horses and, uh, you know, these books were actually used. Uh, as in France, I also found books that certainly required extra care and money to produce, such as um, this one here. Um, as you can imagine, um, uh, the composition of pages like these uh, required more time from composers uh, and cost more to have made. I also want to show you this Plants of London um, by William Curtis, probably the most beautiful book I have seen so far with its many well-executed and colored plates, um, as this one. I'm sorry, you probably cannot see well, but uh, they, they really are beautiful. As a, here's the dandelion. Uh, I thought uh, it was a good choice uh, today to show you the dandelion, uh, not only for how accurate it looks, but also because they, are, uh, they, they seem to have taken over Oxford uh, these last few days. 
All right. So now uh, for the question of who. Having so many specialized book, we of course expect to find many different types of professional, uh, professionals among the author's publishers. As we can see here, uh, you know, I, uh, from this chart, the global portrait of authors' publishers is very, very similar to authors in general at the same period. The only notable differences actually only concern the clergy and the army, but the rest of the categories are more or less the same. As we also find in the, we also find the same proportion of women among the authors, in case you might be wondering, at around 3%. Of course, we do find among them a few eccentric uh, authors. For example, Gabriel Delort, who insisted on proving that Pythagoras was wrong. On, uh, you know, Le Roberger, who, to the desperation of the Science Academy, wanted to prove that he has solved the famous squaring of the circle. Or the botanist, um, Pierre-Joseph Buchoz, who was uh, many times ridiculed by his colleagues, for, uh, who, for instance, falsely declared him dead in a newspaper and who even named a parasite plant after him, the Buchosia. Buchos, who impressively self-published hundreds of works after he had a horrible experience with publishers, notably had this plate made to express his sorrow, depicting the poor botanist literally crushed by the elite, as he felt himself. But it is important to stress that these were not, the, uh, not only poor or scorned writers who self-published their works, because no publisher would ever be interested. There were also esteemed professionals who wrote about, about their crafts, such as uh, Berthoud here, uh, a highly respected clockmaker, Antoine Parmentier, whose name is still remembered today for having promoted the consumption of potatoes in France, and also many teachers who published manuals, um, such as this one here. Um, all kinds of books, indeed. Some more original than others, such as this method for performing uh, magic tricks uh, using everyday objects, as you can see from the illustrations, using cars, using coins. Um, it was a very popular book at the, at the time. We also had a contemporary uh, English uh, translation, which the author supervised. Um, we also have uh, something, you know, randomly, <laughs> because I thought it was kind of uh, strange when I first read the title, this Traité sur la Pogonotomie, what the author called Pogonotomie, or the art of shaving oneself, uh, written by Bouchard, a razor maker. Apart from these, we also find a few prominent authors, um, to only name a few, we have, uh, you know, prominent at the time in France. Uh, Fario de Saint-Ange, uh, Louvet Couvret, who is uh, he's the uh, author of the uh, popular adventures of the Chevalier de Faublas, then who was a bestseller. Uh, Michel-Jean Sedan, uh, author of, uh, among other things, La Gajure Imprévue, which he self-published in 79 and again in 88. And we must also uh, include the then famous uh, Jean-François uh, de la Harpe, um, to Voltaire and winner of many prizes from the Académie Française, and a few uh, well-known female authors also, like Olympe de Gouges, who later self-published the edition of her works. I could give many examples, but one of the most important conclusions of my study was that, contrary to what one might have thought, self-publishing was not a marginalization factor. It concerned the high as well as the low literature, literature thus creating great contrast in both who and what was self-published. 
So how did one uh, self-publish exactly? In order to explore this, I will briefly look at these few steps, starting with uh, censorship and privileges. First, French authors had to go through censorship and apply to the chancellor in order to get either a permission simple or a privilege. By studying the chancellor's records, we see that authors increasingly made the request themselves in the later part of the uh, uh, 18th century. Indeed, requests were made by authors instead of publishers, which was previously the norm, in a proportion of 42% in 75 and to 74% in 83. To me, this shift shows once more, at least in part, the impact of the new bookselling code of 1777. And arguably, more and more authors also chose to pay for the more expensive privilege instead of the permission simple, which only allowed you to print a book, um, in order to better assert their literary property, since only the privilege conferred exclusivity. Indeed, authors who asked for a permit themselves chose a privilege uh, in a proportion of 57% in 75 and of 73% in 83. For my research on London, I now plan to study the stationer's register in order to assess the number of authors who took the trouble of having their book officially entered in the register there. Okay, so um, once authors finally had the permission to publish their book, uh, the next step was obviously printing. For a very special kind of book, um, usually music, the printing process was all done through engraving. Um, this is the case of this book, which you can also see on display today. Um, this process was especially useful for reproducing handwritten patterns for which there were no printing types available. In this case, is you know, a guide on stenography. But for most authors, the next step involved doing business with a printer. After the ratification of the decrees in 77, printers surely saw more and more authors request their services. Unfortunately, printers did not leave many detailed records of their activity in France as they did in England. But it's still possible to draw a few statistics from the inquiry that was uh, done, um, here's just a picture of uh, uh, the microfilm, uh, done by the authorities in the Parisian print shops uh, from 1769 to 71, and again from 86 to 88, uh, records that detail the works, print, uh, the works printed and for whom they were printed. So, you know, if you look here, you have the title and pour le compte de, so, and you can spot, you know, a few authors here and there. Okay, so from this source, I found out that whereas an average of only 8% of the works um, uh, printed in Paris were executed for authors in 69 to 71, this number jumped to more than 31% in the 80s, uh, reaching even 34% in 1786. For the study of self-publishing in London, the work of Keith Maisland, who studied the ledgers of the London printers named Boyer, provides a tremendous resource. For the year 1731, for example, Maisland calculated that about a third of all the sheets composed in the Boyer print shop were done for the author. Here I have his uh, figure. All right. Um, for the study of self-publishing in London, the work of Keith Maitlin, um, uh is, 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 of course, useful. Here I have made a graph with the number of jo jobs done for authors in each decade as found by Maislin. 
In a short paper he wrote on the subject in 1972, Maislin tried to analyze this rise and then continuous decline of prints made for the author. Although his analysis certainly provides valuable insights, uh, when we then compare his data with the books uh, printed for the author found in the ESDC and the Bodleian, we see how um, it will be important, and here it is, it will be important to study more than just one print shop, as the tendency found by Maislin, here you have the, both of them, might be representative of circumstances only related to the Boyers alone. As you can see, it's really not the same uh, tendency. When we compare both sets of data in one graph, two further remarks need to be made. First, it might seem odd that the number of jobs for authors at the Boyers exceeds the number of books found in the ESTC. Um, that is because Maislin took into account all kinds of prints done for authors, including receipts, calling cards, etc., something that I'm not concerned with and which cannot be traced in any book catalog. Second, a higher number of jobs for authors by the Boyers uh, than what can be found in the catalogs also shows how it's important to supplement the research with other sources because books that were in fact printed for the author do not always bear the inscription on the title page. This is notably the case of Alexander Pope, who did self-publish a number of works, for example, the Dunciad here, as we can find evidence through his correspondence and in the Boyer ledgers, but which bear no inscription to that effect on the book. All right. Um, so now financing, getting the necessary funds in order to start the publishing process was surely one of the most important factors that would determine the success or the failure of a self-publishing enterprise. For authors who lacked financial wealth, a new solution gained in popularity then, subscription. Brought from England, where this method was in use since the 17th century, subscription had only gained real popularity in France in the, from the 1750s. For authors, organizing and supervising uh, the subscription themselves clearly constituted a way to have better control over the publishing process. Uh, not only did it allow them to evaluate the appropriate print run, it also helped them to control the different financial aspects. This was, uh, for example, the method used by Le Tourneur, who was responsible for bringing Shakespeare to France with his first complete translation of the works. Thanks to his careful planning and his ability to oversee the publishing process, Le Tourneur managed to publish the complete translation of Shakespeare in 20 volumes over the span of only six years, as he had promised to his subscribers, which certainly wasn't a small feat. This is certainly an example of a very successful um, self-publishing enterprise. Also, a good example of the use of subscription in England, we can find a case of Benjamin Martin. Benjamin Martin, who was once the schoolmaster, had a significant influence on the development of the microscope and optical instruments uh, in the 18th century. Along with the publication of numerous works on mathematics, um, such as this one here, which you can also see um, at the Bullion uh, here outside, uh, he also had a shop on Fleet Street where he sold the instruments of his design. Many professionals could, um, here's another plate, many professionals could combine publishing with their other professional activity, one complementing the other. For example, here, Benjamin uh, Martin 
published a work on the microscope, which, as you can maybe read from where you are, uh, is given gratis with the microscope, but it will be sixpence for the others. All right, so uh, uh, often neophytes are publishing, ha having other occupations and still in the middle of the writing process, self-publishing certainly required a new set of skills and knowledge. Uh, for example, de la Beaumelle, uh, who published the memoirs of Madame de Maintenon, uh, here is a, his a very popular book then, wrote to his brother in 1752 about his difficulty to foresee the difficult, uh, different publishing costs. He wrote, I have my three volumes of Maintenon, which will surely procure me a great sum of money, a work which I cannot finish for lack of money. I have not measured well. I have published 1550 copies of each volume so that I am now broke and the work is suspended for lack of paper. I have also ventured to publish another edition of my Mes Pensées. It is now being printed, but I do not know how I will pay the printer and the paper maker. It is true that I only published 600 copies and that the cost will not amount to more than 150 livres, but I am not less grieved by the situation, how I am to be pitied. Despite the many challenges that self-publishing involved by being able to contract a deal directly with the printer, the papermaker, and sometimes the engraver, uh, authors could really orchestrate the printing process and control the materiality of the finished product. Okay, so the commercialization challenge now. Wanting to sell their books on their own, self-publishing authors had to find ways in order to reach potential buyers. To have a better idea of their use of promotional tools, I listed every book advertised chez l'auteur in the weekly periodical here uh, called Catalogue Hebdomadaire or Journal de la Librairie from 1782, which advertised new literary works, mainly in Paris, over a period of 27 years. So out of the just over 20,000 ads of new livres nationaux published between 63 and 89, I counted a, a total of just over 2,000 ads uh, of works sold in, par in Paris chez l'auteur. Um, this is what it looked like here. You probably won't see, but um, uh, here you can spot a Paris chez l'auteur in these ads. Proportionally, ads published by the author represented up to 14% of all ads in this uh, periodical. I also found that nearly 60%, so the majority of identified authors, advertised at least one, one book in this catalog, um, showing how most of them were proactive in the commercialization of their books. In addition to placing an ad for their books, several authors also used promotional tactics, such as rebates, uh, guarantees, uh, constituting tangible efforts to successfully promote their works. For London, I wish to make a similar systematic analysis of ads found in newspapers. Um, here are two examples of ads. This is from a previous uh, period, but it can still show you what I am looking for. So here we can see sold by the author. And this is an ad of, uh, in the London Daily Advertiser in the Literary Gazette, where you can spot you know, sold by the author. In the coming weeks, I also wish to go through uh, the John Johnson collection housed here in the Bodleian. Devoted to the book trade, this collection containing a vast area of prospectuses, trade, trade sale catalogs, and other relevant printed ephemera 
should represent a valuable source of information pertaining to the commercial activities of, I hope, at least a few uh, authors, publishers. All right, so after having convinced readers to purchase their work, authors uh, working on their own still had to organize the transactions. For authors selling from their house, the challenges of book commerce were certainly significant. Indeed, to sell their books by themselves was particularly hard since they, not, they did not benefit from the well-established selling networks of the booksellers. Also, without clear shop signs and before there were numbers on every door, an author's address could sometimes sound a bit complicated. For instance, that of Duplessis, who sold his uh, Archive Mytho Hermétique on Mazarin Street, near the crossroads of Debussy, above the Café de Montpellier, on the second floor, using the staircase on the right, at the far end of the alley. Even if we find more systematic street numbers earlier in London, I could still find similar addresses, such as this one here for Quackery on Mass, um, where we read that it is sold, uh, printed and sold by the author at his house, the Golden Ball, which from Cheapside is three doors past the Sun Tavern in Honey Lane Market, in the passage that goes in between the coffee house and Tallow Chandler's, being a thoroughfare to Wood Street. Selling books from one's house also implied other challenges, for instance, the organization of space and of time, sometimes requiring designated business hours. In order to reach a wider group of readers, many authors also decided to use the services of a bookseller to whom they would usually give copies en dépôt, uh, meaning that the bookseller would only give, money, give them money if and when they sold any of the copies. For doing so, authors usually gave 20 to 30% of the profits to the bookseller, who in the end did not risk anything by keeping the copies in his shop. Of course, for writers who kept the rights to their books, but who did not want to sell them themselves, uh, as is uh, presumably the case of books that, were, that bear the inscription printed for the author but sold by this on this bookseller, um, the collaboration with booksellers was essential. But title pages and inscription, as many of you might know, can be misleading. For example, when we look at this title page um, uh, of a book by Antoine Mogard, we would think that it is published by Gaté and Lamy and that the author had uh, nothing to do with it. It is only through the author's account book, which we are lucky to still have, that we learn all about his many self-publishing ventures. For this book, for example, we know that Mogar managed to distribute copies to several booksellers, probably looking a little bit like this, uh, you know, with a wheelbarrow full of books going to booksellers uh, one by one. And by the way, this uh, wonderful illustration is taken from the John Johnson uh, collection. But all in all, Mogar only managed to distribute 329 copies of his book and uh, the two booksellers who uh, took the greatest loads uh, were the ones on the title page, that is Lamy here for um, 78 copies and Gaté for 108. So in the end, out of a print run of 2,000 copies, the author was still responsible for selling nearly 90% of them. We thus must bear in mind that when we see books uh, with the inscription chez l'auteur, and she, this or this bookseller, uh, in the case of France, here we have an example. You have Chilotard and then a list of uh, booksellers. Uh, these book booksellers might only have had a few copies to sell. 
Um, and I will, of course, want to confirm this pattern uh, with the booksellers in London, but I think that there is a good chance that it worked more or less the same way. Okay, so now the crucial question of could self-publishing be successful? Considering all the time and efforts necessary to publish on their own, it is not surprising to find testimonies from authors who clearly stated that their objective was to make money from it. This want for profit is, I argue, directly linked with the different, different authorial pleas in the 18th century for better rights and for the recognition of writing as a profession. For example, Labomel wrote to his brother in, in 52, quote, you scold me for having printed at my cost, but until now it has served me well. And who would have bought my manuscript? I would not have gotten 400 livres for it, end quote. And the year later, he wrote again to his brother to brag about the several thousand écus he had earned from his books. Even though many factors would determine their chance of success, among which we find the type of work uh, they published, uh, their financing method, and the production costs, um, you know, with the choice of format, paper, quality, engravings, their efficient use of advertisements and the establishment of a wider selling network, self-publishing authors who proceeded carefully could hope to make uh, money from this activity. And several did, as we can see from the multiple editions of several self-published works. Although he certainly is not representative of most authors who printed for their own account, it is est estimated that Alexander Pope made 10,000 pounds from his translation of Homer alone. And Richard Schur, who looked at self-publishing in Scotland, also reported that although it certainly wasn't, as he wrote, for the faint of heart, um, authors could make money from it. Okay, so as I have mentioned, um, after having studied this case of self-publishing in Paris, I am now moving into unfamiliar territory, both geographically and chronologically, in order to have a better and more global understanding of self-publishing in Western Europe, mainly France, England, and what will become uh, Germany in the 18th and 19th centuries. In German books, uh, in case you're wondering, the key word uh, to look for seems to be Verfassa, which means author here, as in this example here, uh, by them Verfassa, here you have gedrückt uh, by, so printed by, and für den Verfassa, for the author, uh, or of customs des Verfassas, but it's really hard to find a systematic phrasing, so at the cost of the authors. Essentially, my goal is to analyze how different legislative, economic, and cultural contexts influence the practice of self-publishing and what this has to tell us about the changing nature of authorial identity in Europe during this transformative period in the period of print and publishing. Preliminary results already illustrate the importance of studying self-publishing over a long period. Indeed, this, these figures tend to suggest that the end of the 18th century might only have been the tip of the iceberg in the case of France. In effect, so what happens next? Here is what I have shown you for the 18th century. But as we can see now from this chart, self-publishing, and this is the portion, you know, the first slide, uh, self-publishing does not die with the revolution and goes on strong for many decades. Of course, as the number of books published each year also progresses, the proportion uh, does not necessarily follow the same pattern. So here you have uh, propor proportionally more or less what it looks like with my preliminary figures. 
Uh, in any case, we can see uh, from, from, from this that in Paris, uh, self-publishing will thrive from the late 1770s all the way until the mid-19th century. And so, what about London? Um, there is a reason I only showed you the figures up to the 1790s. Um, this is, what, uh, this is be uh, because this is what happens next. Um, the graph makes it look rather dramatic, but uh, we must consider that there is apparently a drop in production at the same time. So proportionally, preliminary figures uh, this pattern uh, here. Uh, so, you know, the, this is the, the middle of the century and this is the beginning of the 19th century. Um, okay, so here in comparison uh, with, uh, with France, uh, we see that in London the practice loses its vitality quickly in the 19th century. Here are um, the same data but more sort of proportionally, it's not very clear, I wonder which one is clearer, but anyway. Um, even though by mid-century we barely find cases of books printed for the author in London, we still find notorious cases such as the one of uh, Charles Dickens, who, uh, a case study I will naturally want to include, uh, who, for example, had a liver twist here, this edition, published for the author. And this is, of course, the later edition, but still. Uh, but why does self-publishing seems, for now anyway, to survive longer in Paris? This is only one of the many questions I hope to find answers to in the coming few years. Okay, so the numerous pleas um, formulated by authors, whether before or after the decrees of 1777, in the case of France, certainly demonstrate the different shifts that occurred in regards to the conceptualization of authors' legal and economic rights. For writers ready to take on the challenge of self-publishing, a new independent and modern practice became possible. Whether or not many authors self-published from beginning, beginning to end, that is from the acquisition of the rights all the way to the sale of their uh, books, the fact remains that more and more authors were getting more involved with the publishing process at one stage or the other as the 18th century progressed. This study, I believe, shows how we should reevaluate the role that many writers had within the book market and in what and was, uh, in what was published and how. It is also interesting to study not only the unique relationship these authors had with printers and booksellers, but also with the readers with whom they could interact more directly. Uh, indeed, not only did writers get to interact with their readers uh, by having them come to their house, they would sometimes also propose to correspond with them and ask for their feedback. Finally, authors who fully acknowledged the professional status of writing and who desired to live off, usually among other things, the profit generated by the sale of their books could, without apparent conflict, reconcile the contemplative nature of writing with the more prosaic nature of publishing. Indeed, even if for many authors, self-publishing was only attempted for a few of their works, being both a costly and time-consuming endeavor, the fact that so many decided to risk it nonetheless signifies how this practice was part of the world of the book in the 18th century. Thank you.